This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we have for you a sermon from David Cassidy. David Cassidy serves as lead pastor at Christ Community Church in Franklin, Tennessee. This sermon was originally recorded in June 2019 at the PCA General Assembly in Dallas, Texas. It's a joy to be with you this evening. Get into God's Word together. We're going to be in Psalm 145. I was driving home after worship one Sunday in the great city of Austin, Texas. Hook them. And uh, my then five-year-old daughter turned to me and she said, Dad, why do you pray before you preach? And I said, well, I pray that it'll help me. Oh, she said, why doesn't he? She said, so we got to pray we got to pray let's pray together our father and god we bless you we give you thanks we pray that the same holy spirit who inspired these words to be written would be at work in our hearts to inscribe them there and renew our minds and transform our lives that we may be pleasing in your sight. And so let the words of our mouths and, and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to draw your attention to Psalm 145. We're, our text tonight's the first 13 verses. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 4 at the outset. A song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I want to draw your attention tonight to one of the great truths that we hold to, and that is that God, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, has decided to move through history from one generation to the next. And over and over again in the scriptures, we find that the faithfulness of God is seen from generation to generation. That, in fact, all those genealogies, which we so lightly read over or perhaps just skip, 
are the the very framework of redemptive history. It's in that long list of names, discovering that Israel was first a family before it was a nation, that going right back to the very beginning when, when God made his promise to Abram that he would, by his seed, bring salvation to the ends of the earth, that God has, from one generation to the next, brought blessing to the world. It's true in family and it's true in ministry too. I've seen it. I've seen that in my own life. I, I was baptized and catechized and confirmed as a Lutheran. So uh, I haven't always been a Presbyterian. In fact, I'm a fairly recent arrival compared to some of, some of you folks. And then, you know, having been baptized, catechized and confirmed as a Lutheran in what is now Elka, I at the zenith of my wisdom when I was 15, um, decided to abandon, turn my back on anything that looked like the historic church. I didn't really want anything more to do with that because it was pretty dead and pretty dusty. I wanted to be part of the zealots. I wanted to be part of the radicals. I wanted to be part of the people that were going to make it happen. And I looked for them and I, I found them because you can find them. And uh, so I said, I'm going to be a radical. I'm going to get out there. And the folks I was with, you know, they were, you know, they, they, didn't, think, they didn't think much about uh, very highly of doing something like going to seminary or something like that. That really wasn't, the seminary is where you went to lose your faith. And there, there was some empirical evidence to suggest that that was possible. And so I pursued an academic career that was different than that, but we were serving the Lord. We were preaching the gospel in places. I, I moved to, to England when I was 19. I, I uh, met my, my, my wife there, and uh, then we, we got married a year later. And, and then in 1981, we, we moved to London, and we planted a church there. We, we would preach on the street. People would stay away by the millions. But eventually... <laughs> eventually, eventually a church there, a church there got planted. It was meeting in some area congregations and then a big central one in Westminster. And, and, uh, so, so, uh, there it was. And, and, and 36 years ago this week, John Stott and Malcolm Muggeridge and, uh, Francis Schaefer spoke to a gathering of some 50,000 people in Hyde Park. And I was asked by a Christian publication to, afterwards, go interview Reverend Professor Dr. Schaefer. So I went down to Labrie and Petersfield, just uh, there in Hampshire, and I spent the day with him. And uh, had a wonderful time talking about culture, talking about what God was doing in the world. And then I, I came up with a question. 22-year-old, charismatic, church-planting pastor in London. I asked him a question, which is a great Pentecostal charismatic question. I said, Dr. Schaefer, do you believe that God will give us a visitation in this generation? That's a solid question. And he looked at me. He had about another year to live. He'd been battling cancer seven years. And he looked at me and he said, young man, I hope not. That wasn't the answer I was expecting. <laughs> I said, well, 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 why is that? He said it'd be a tissue paper revival. 
I, that was even more opaque. I had no idea what that, what do you, I said, what are you talking about? A tissue paper revival. He said, look, you and your generation think that studying theology is dry and dusty. Well, it is, but it's like good firewood. And if you would actually spend the next 20 years reading some books and stacking some wood, then maybe if the fire fell, there'd be something to burn for longer than 15 minutes. But as it is, young man, and he waved his finger at me, what you've got right now, if the fire fell, is about as thin as tissue paper, and it would burn very brightly for about 15 seconds and go out. (laughs) Well, I felt edified by that. I'll tell you what. That began a long journey for me because I'm a, I'm a slow learner. And finally by, you know, I'm back in the States and in the mid-90s, I suppose by the mid-90s, because I'd, I'd, I'd read my way into trouble by then. And um, I, I suppose you could have described me as a, uh, a Reformed Baptist suffering from post-charismatic depression. I suppose that's probably about where I was. <laughs> But you know what? I came back to the things that my dad taught me. I came back to the things that a father in the faith, like Professor Schaefer, said to me in that one encounter late in his life to a young man that led me to a place where I called another father in the Lord, like Scotty Smith. And Scotty said, of course, I've got some time for you. Led me to other brothers in the Nashville Presbytery, and in Texas terms, I hung around the creek bank and fell in. And eventually in 2000, the Nashville Presbytery received me as a minister and I served in that Presbytery for a few years and then on down to Texas. Now I'm back in Nashville. But the truth of the matter is that God in his mercy has moved across generations. He did that with my family. Gathered around the piano with my mother singing as we sang tonight. This is my father's world and in the rustling grass I hear him pass. I don't remember many sermons from my youth, but I do remember the hymns. And in those hymns was the rich theology of the Reformation. In in those hymns was the rich theology of the sacred scriptures. And those kept calling me. And that is why I believe that both in our families and in the church... We can have high hopes for the coming generation. Because what a generation it is. What a generation of opportunity we live in. 42% of the world's population tonight is under the age of 25. The median age of the world's population is 28. Let's talk about Christians. The average Christian in the world tonight is not male but female. She's not white. She's brown. She's a lot more Pentecostal than Presbyterian, I hasten to add. The average Christian in the world tonight is in Asia or sub-Saharan Africa. And she hasn't, she hasn't been to a passion conference and, and, uh, she, she hasn't read C.S. Lewis and she hasn't read Christianity today. She doesn't go to Starbucks to work on sermons. She doesn't care about alternative endings to the Game of Thrones and she doesn't really care if the latest lyric from Hillsong agrees with our confessional standards. She just doesn't. And she's not afraid to suffer. Because these brothers and sisters in the developing world, they're far surpassing us in so many ways. 
are suffering. 215 million believers are persecuted around the world tonight by Islamic extremists, Hindu nationalists, North Koreans, Chinese. There's tremendous pain in that church and, and the, and the church that's emerging in this young generation is carrying the gospel deep in their hearts and they're willing to suffer and they're willing to do whatever it takes to take the gospel to wherever it needs to go. But of course, closer to home, can we talk, can we talk closer to home? We sense a, a note of despair. When you talk to student ministry leaders, they will tell you that in the rising generation, there is an increasing sense of isolation. Not just isolation in terms of the church, but relationally. They've never been more virtually connected, but never more relationally degraded. And so there is great psychological harm that is being witnessed not only by Christian leaders, but by those in the medical professions across the board. Between 2006 and 2016, the suicide rate in the United States for people ages 10 to 17 went up 70%. That's an alarming statistic. In 2018, life expectancy in the United States, life expectancy in the United States fell for the third straight year. The last time that happened was during World War I, and that's when you added into the casualty figures the victims of the flu. And of course, we see the decay in the church too, don't we? We notice that the traffic on Sunday mornings isn't maybe what it used to be. You sometimes hear people say, well, you know, 50% of the, the people in the United States claim to be Christians. Well, I'm not sure 50% of the people in the church are Christians, but... It's sure not 180 million people that are believers. It's really, if you look at the statistics, more like 7 to 9%. It's not 50%. And we've lost in the evangelical circle 2.6 million people in the last decade. And among 18 to 29-year-olds, 69 to 80% of them will get up and leave the faith, at least for a while. We're losing 260,000 a year between the ages of 18 and 29. That's 712 kids a day. 712. From the time we started debate this morning to the time we ended tonight, said, I don't want to be in the church anymore. But we'll plant more churches, and we should, and we need to. But when we plant 4,000 churches every year as evangelicals, do you know that we close 3,700 a year? We've got a net gain of 300, and that's not going to get it done. So, of course, you could feel great despair. But you know something? Herman Bavink, in our reasonable faith, said, There is no ground, there is no reason for despair, because from one generation to the next, our God is on the move. He said that because of the covenant of redemption... In eternity past, when the father said, son, I'm going to give you a bride. And the, the son said, I'll go and die for her. And then the spirit said, I'll go and apply to them in time what you have accomplished for them in history. What the father arranged in eternity and the son accomplished in history, the spirit applies personally. And when they, they entered into that covenantal bond, and then they extended that in the covenant of grace into our own history, into our own lives, Babbing says that based in that, we have no cause for despair because God has promised that he will be at work 
Some years ago, back when I was living in England, I started collecting unusual exam questions and answers. You know, the kind of thing like, where, where was the Declaration of Independence signed? And one student wrote, at the bottom. Um, <laughs> finish this great quote, to be, and one student wrote, continued. Uh, but my favorite one is from... Um, the Hendon Police Academy on the north side of London. Here's the exam question. A young police officer was taking his final exam at the Hendon Police College, and he said, here's a question. You are on patrol in London when an explosion occurs in a gas main in a nearby street. On investigation, you find that a large hole has been blown in the footpath, and there's an overturned van lying nearby. Inside the van, there's the strong smell of alcohol. Both occupants, a man and a woman, are injured. A passing motorist stops to offer you assistance, but you realize that he is a man who is wanted for a series of violent armed robberies. Just at that moment, another man runs from a nearby house shouting that his wife is expecting a baby and that the shock of the explosion has made the birth imminent. Someone else cries for help, having been thrown into an adjacent canal by the explosion, and they cannot swim. Bearing in mind the provisions of the Mental Health Act, describe in a few words what action you would take. The young officer candidate thought for a moment, picked up his pen and wrote down, I would take off my uniform and merge with the crowd. <laughs> That's not an option for us. It's just not. We are not allowed to take off our uniform and merge with the crowd. We're not allowed to be the generation of capitulation. We got to be the generation with some insulation that will be the generation of infiltration that will go into the world in it, but not of it, and empowered with the Holy Spirit to bring the gospel from one generation to the next. So how are you going to get that done? Well, here's the two things. You got to be on message and you got to be in the mission. All right. You got to be on message. In Psalm 145, let's look at it again. In verse 6, they will speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They will pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and sing aloud of your righteousness. They will speak of your awesome deeds. You know, in Israel, when they said, we're going to talk about God's awesome deeds, they were talking about, they were talking about the Exodus. They were talking about what God had done when he said, I've heard the cry of my people. I've seen their affliction and I have come down to deliver them. And they commemorated that every year at Passover. And they said, one generation will tell the next. That's why the little boy says, father, why is this night different from all other night? Because on this night. God delivered us from the hand of the Egyptians. And so the, the redemptive story is passed on the mighty. Let's, let me tell you what God did. He split the Red Sea. He, he has moved powerfully on our behalf. And so the story is passed from generation to generation. And of course, that points ahead to a still greater exodus. When our Lord Jesus would deliver us from a greater tyranny. Liberate us from the power of sin and death. And that is the story we tell our children. And friends, tonight, there are no undiscipled children. Every child in our church, every child in you that you know is being discipled. The only question is by whom and into what? And so, my friends, we have before us the great opportunity to tell the gospel to the next generation. We have to be on message. Can I ask you tonight, are we on message? Is that what the world recognizes about us? That we are telling of the mighty deeds of God? I'm not sure it is. John Freeman from Harvest and I were 
discussing something we agree on, he noted, and I want to read for you a quote from a book named Unchristian, titled Unchristian, what the next generation thinks of Christianity. It's written by Gabe Lyon and Dave Kinneman. And they write, the single most recognized thing about Christians today in the wider culture is that we are anti-gay bigots. Let me give you the quote. The severity of the perception surprised us out of the 20 attributes we assessed, both positive and negative, as they related to Christianity, being anti-homosexual was at the top of the list. Not opposition to gay politics or behavior. Listen carefully now. Not opposition to the politics or the behavior, but disdain for individuals has become virtually synonymous with the Christian faith, unquote. Now, you don't deserve that. I know that part of that is a story that's told by others. The ancient Christians were lied about as well. They were accused of atheism and incest and cannibalism. They were accused of all manner of wickedness. And the the great church apologists work hard on that. And you and I have to work hard on that too. But my friends, we have to be very careful that we don't bury the lead. You and I have a story to tell. And our task is not to go into the world and tell them where they're wrong. Our task is to go into the world and tell them how they can be right with Almighty God. Because God was in Christ, not counting our sins against us, but reconciling us to Himself. We bring to the world not bad news, but good news. They know they've got bad news. We're bringing to them the best news that anyone can ever hear. That the power of sin can be broken, that the power of the grave can be defeated, and it has been brought about through the power of Jesus Christ. And the next time somebody stops somebody in a street in Dallas and says, give me the first thing you think of when the word evangelical comes to mind, I hope the answer is, oh, those people who can't stop talking about Jesus. That's the thing that we have to be known for. And that's true for spiritual generations too. That's what Schaefer put into me. That we have to Make disciples of young men. I took him seriously. I, I, I got on my bike. When I got back to London, Spurgeon's Tabernacle was five minutes away by bike. And I heard they had a bookshop. And I went in there and I asked the guy, I said, I, I got to read some systematic theology. I'm the pastor of a church. What do you recommend? And he gave me Louis Burkhoff. Well, I've still got that copy of Burkhoff, and I sat on Clapham Common, and I read it twice that summer, and it was dry. (laughs) But here's the fun part. The fun part was, you can see in the margin where I would go, what about this? And then on the next page, oh. (laughs) Yeah, that's what happened. That's what happened. And that's what Paul did for Timothy. That's what Paul did for Timothy. He called him his true child in the faith. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he said, he said, Timothy, you've got a rich treasure which has been entrusted to you, the gospel. I want you to guard it. I want you to guard it. But I also want you to give it. The things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's the task of our seminaries. That's the task of your churches. Are you training the next generation of leaders? Churches that train the next generations of generation of leaders have a future. Churches that don't have the shelf life of a blockbuster video store. I'm telling you, some of you don't get that because you go, Blockbuster Video Store, that's the point. 
That's the point. No future. But if you will give yourself to passing the faith to the next generation, if you will move that direction, then you will see a flourishing, a blooming, as the word of God, the treasure of the gospel is passed from one generation to the next. You see, we don't know where we are in the story. Maybe Jesus doesn't come back for another 10,000 years. That makes you the early church. Think about it. That means that 500 years from now, there'll be some poor guy at RTS Tehran doing a church history exam. And he'll be sitting there going, Eve, Athanasius, Ambrose, Augustine, Link Duncan, Tim Keller, I can't keep these church fathers straight. The things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The Bible compares the church to a house. If that's the case, the PCA Administrative Committee is the plumbing of the church. Its work is mostly hidden from view, and you don't appreciate it until it breaks. The AC provides churches, presbyteries, and the assembly with the expertise and action needed to keep their ministries moving forward. They don't set the agenda for the PCA. They just make sure its agenda is accomplished. Their vital work depends on generous churches and individuals like you. Learn more about them at PCAAC.org. You got to be on message, but we also have to be on the mission. And see, friends, here's the truth. In the United States today, when you wake up in the morning, pastor, listen to me, you wake up in a mission field. And if you don't know that you're a, a missionary pastor, well, brother, pass the coffee. Because we are waking up in a mission field. And there's a connection in the inheritance of Jesus in the nations, because he's asking the Father for his inheritance in the nations, there's a connection between that and what happens from generation to generation. Psalm 45, 17 says, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So when we are on message with the gospel to the next generation, we begin to see a turning of nations towards the living God. But the only way, of course, brothers and sisters, the mission can be carried out is by the Holy Spirit. We have to have the Holy Spirit. You go, Pastor, don't go charismatic on me now. I know your past. You just told us about it. Don't backslide. Oh, no, listen, friends. Listen, friends. B.B. Warfield said John Calvin was the theologian of the Holy Spirit. We, we have a robust, we have a robust theology of the Holy Spirit. We should be people who are out Pentecostaling the Pentecostals every day of our lives. We are people who honestly believe that the Holy Spirit is way ahead of us. And as we're, as we're preaching, the Holy Spirit's at work. As we go to our, as we go to our jobs, the Holy Spirit is at work. The Holy Spirit is leading us, guiding us. The, the Spirit is speaking to us and assuring us. The Spirit has regenerated us and brought us to life. This is why the great John Murray said, while Pentecost cannot be repeated, neither has it been rescinded. The Holy Spirit is not on strike. When Charles Spurgeon stepped into the pulpit 
at the Metropolitan Tabernacle where I bought Louis Burkhoff, when Spurgeon walked into the pulpit, he walked up the steps saying, I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. Let me ask you a theological question. Do you believe that Christ is present in the church when you're there gathered in worship and when you're preaching? Do you believe he's there? Oh, well, yeah. Where two or three are gathered together. There I am in my name. Well, what's he look like when he's there with you? Is he standing there like this? With his arms folded? Still? Jesus does not meet with his church with his arms folded. His hands are extended. He is moving by the power of his grace. This is why renewal in our churches is not a return to what was, but an embrace of what's next. This is why you and I have to recognize that the Holy Spirit is at work. And he's in work in all believers. And this is why one of the things that he does is he baptizes us into these churches. You see, part of what's going on in the rising generation is so the thought that we don't need the church. Well, I've got Jesus and I've got the Holy Spirit. But so maybe I don't need all of you. But wait, the Spirit has baptized us into the body of Christ. People don't recognize the body. <laughs> when we moved to London in 1981, we thought the first thing we should do was master the underground. But we made the mistake of doing that during rush hour. So we got on the underground, and if you, many of you I know have been on there, and you get all squeezed in there in rush hour, and I, we've been married about a year, I'm trying to be a good husband, and there's my, my new young bride, and she's kind of looking a little like, oh my gosh, this is getting a little creepy. And uh, so I began to comfort her, and I was petting her hand, and after about a minute, she looked up at me, and she said, David, that's not my hand. <laughs> sure enough, sure enough. Being a good British woman, that woman, she didn't say anything. She didn't say anything. She's like, no, no, I'm not saying anything. I didn't recognize the body. Let's just say that. I wasn't discerning the body rightly. There's a whole lot of people who, who don't discern the body rightly. They don't know how much they need the church. But let me quote Schaefer. True Christianity produces beauty as well as truth. If we do not show beauty in the way we treat each other, then in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of our own children, we will be destroying the truth we proclaim. Let me ask you a question, parents. How long, how long would you let your children go missing before you went looking for them? At church. <laughs> when Jesus was 12, he went missing. He wasn't lost, misplaced maybe would be a better way to put it. How long was it before Joseph and Mary started searching? Well, they, about a day or so went by before they even started. It says they thought he was, the, the NAS says they thought he was in the caravan. They thought he was with their relatives. What a beautiful picture. You know, we all need a caravan. I grew up in a Lutheran caravan. We had, we had apple kuchen with our curies. We had, we had casseroles with our confessions. We had, we had kegs. But when you grow up in a caravan, when you grow up in a community of believers, whether you are a child or a young person who needs to be shaped for ministry, you're not simply getting a download of information, you're getting an impartation of life. And that's what needs to happen as the example is set before us. My friends, the world needs to see Christians loving each other. They need to see the body of Christ. A few years ago, a man from Madison, Wisconsin named Bill Connor 
took his family on vacation. And while they were in Florida, tragically, his 20-year-old daughter, Abby, drowned. They did everything they could to save her, but they couldn't. But she did donate her organs. And a couple of years later, Bill Connor decided that he would make a journey from Madison, Wisconsin, all the way back down to Florida to raise awareness for tissue donation, organ donation, and so on. And when he got to the end of the journey down there in Florida, there waiting for him was a man, an African-American man named Lamont Jack. And Lamont Jack had beating inside of him the heart of his daughter, Abby. He was there when he crossed the finish line and he hugged him. And then he pulled out of his back pocket a stethoscope. And he put it in his ears and he put it up to his chest and he could hear his daughter's heartbeat. My friends, Christ is in you. And the world wants to put the stethoscope up and hear the heartbeat of Jesus in the life of the church. And if you're discouraged about the church tonight, if you're dismayed about the church tonight, if you think that the culture is hostile, you think this culture is hostile, I'm telling you, we've seen worse. Oh, we've seen worse in history. Far worse. And we've worn them out. We'll still be here. One generation will tell the mighty deeds of God. You think things are dark in the church? That's why you got to tell the gospel to the next generation. Calvin was 26 years old when he first published the Institutes. Luther was in his 30s when he nailed up those 95 theses. Butcher was in his mid-20s. Knox was 23 years old when he went into the ministry. Edwards was 23 when he became a pastor. Dr. King was only 35 years old when he preached, I have a dream. I'm telling you folks, no matter how dark you think it is tonight, the God who moves from generation to generation will not suffer to be imposed on his name the insult that he was not able to see by his spirit the truth of the gospel move from one generation to the next. That is why, brothers and sisters, when you look at the scene and you ask the question that God asked Ezekiel, can these bones live? There's only one answer. Oh, Lord, you know. And then God gave him amazing instructions. He said to Ezekiel, preach to the bones. That's a great passage for pastors. Pastors love that verse. Preach to the bones. Preach to the bones. But then, preaching to the bones, the bones, it says there was a sound, there was a rattling. They began to come together. They came together. And there was tissue that formed on them. Now we got a valley of corpses. But it wasn't just preaching. Then he said, call for the wind. Call for the breath. Call for the breath of heaven. My friends, we got to preach to the bones and we got to call for the breath. We need a, a reviving of the word of God being faithfully preached and a reviving of the spirit of God powerfully moving. We got to preach to the bones and we got to call on the wind. And when we do, we can anticipate that the promise of God from generation to generation will be fulfilled. When I baptize people, little child, I take them up and my hands and I give them these words of Huguenots who suffered unbelievably. Blessed child of the covenant, 
For you, God made the world. For you, the prophets and the patriarchs were sent. For you, the covenants and the promises were given. For you, God's revelation was written down. For you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, became a man, lived a perfect life, died upon the cross, was raised again for your salvation. You cannot possibly know these things now, but we, your church, promise to tell them to you until you make them your own. For many years, my oldest son was gone. But now, many Sundays, he stands with me at the Lord's table and he helps to distribute communion because he came home. How did he come home? Because somebody preached to the bones and the wind showed up. Because that's what has to happen, my friends. Somebody's got to preach to the bones, and the breath of heaven has to come in. And if you're suffering and laboring tonight over your children and your grandchildren, and you're wondering what's going on in their life as they explore any number of different religions and spiritualities, and they're afflicted by pop atheists, and they say they don't believe, I want you to know somebody, God is going to send somebody to preach to the bones, and then the breath of heaven is going to come, and God will bring them home. And the reason we know and believe these things is because on the darkest day in human history, when the Son of God was laid in the tomb, they were only hours away from the day when the word would come to the bones, and the breath of heaven would come. And the Spirit would raise him and bring him home to the Father. And my beloved brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, where we're going is this. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and brought him home to the Father is the same Spirit that will raise our children from the dead and bring them home to the Father. And so, beloved, let's preach to the bones. Let's call for the wind, and let's expect one generation to declare your mighty deeds to the next, because his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and one that endures to all generations. Amen and amen. Let's stand together and pray. Thanks, God. You know what? I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to fill in the aisles, and I'm not going to invite you forward, Every head up, every eye open and looking around. (laughs) But I want you to fill the aisles. I'll tell you why. I want us to come together. I want us to come together as a people, and I want us to pray for the next generation, family-wise and spiritually, family and church. How many of you know that our children need Jesus? Our grandchildren need Jesus. And how many of you know we need a new generation of ministers to arise? Praise God. I want to challenge our pastors, take on the next generation. You've got a great treasure, the gospel that's been entrusted to you. But Paul didn't just say guard it. He said give it. Give it. Guard it, but give it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we cry to you. We cry to you for your... For our children, you have said the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. You have said that the children of believers are holy. You have said that one generation to the next will praise your mighty deeds. You have said, good shepherd, that you would bring 
all the scattered children home and you would carry the lambs in your arms. And so, Lord, we pray tonight for scattered sheep. We, we pray tonight for dismayed and parents and grandparents who are full of fear. And we ask, oh, Lord, that you would bring sons and daughters home. Lord, would you raise up servants that will preach to the bones? And Lord, would you visit with your breath of heaven on their lives? And now, Lord, we pray for our churches that you would make them centers of discipleship, centers of training for the next generation. Oh, Lord, so moved by your spirit, so unite us in the gospel. Make it so that we are on message and in the mission that we are unified as never before around seeing your purpose come to pass. That one generation will praise your name to the next. And all God's people said, Amen. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They're free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting PCAGA.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.